This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. For this edition of Update One, we'll hear from Michael Smeltzer, analyst on Russia and the Eurasian region at Freedom House, which was founded in 1941 to monitor the state of democracy around the world. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club. We'll be talking about Russia and the effort of the Putin regime to silence the opposition press in advance of forthcoming elections for the parliament. Mike, Putin is a product of the Soviet Union, so let's start with a look back at the control of information by the Soviet regime, from children's books to newspapers to radio and television. From the outset, didn't the communist leadership consider that as almost as important as the secret police? Absolutely. I mean, during the Soviet period, the media space across the Soviet Union and across the various uh, iterations of of media uh, was closely monitored. Virtually every outlet was controlled by either the state or the the party. I mean, the media environment was characterized by censorship and state-run propaganda. Yeah, in the Soviet period, anybody who had something to say would have to typewrite with carbon paper and privately circulate it and hope the cops didn't find it. Absolutely. You think about that samizdat, that self-publication, it played a role. The question, of course, remains of how big a role it played. But nevertheless, it was, you know, one of the few ways that journalists or average people were able to kind of put out these these independent ideas without the state looking over their shoulder. After almost seven decades of communism, along came Mikhail Gorbachev, who saw the need to rebuild a failed economy, which he called perestroika, and as a prerequisite government transparency and truth-telling, and that was glasnost. So what was the impact on Russian news media? This period did see a slight easing of state control of what was published. Yet, I think it's important to say, while it allowed for more critical reporting of of things like the economy or crime or disasters, there were were still limits to what could and could not be covered. The the party in Gorbachev specifically put forward this policy of glassless, not out of the kindness of his heart, but because he had political enemies as well, and he wanted to uncover some of their corruption so as to help himself. But nevertheless, courageous journalists really pushed the boundaries of what was allowable under glassless and pushed it towards new levels of, of media freedom at, that, at the end of the Soviet Union. Well, Gorbachev was succeeded by Boris Yeltsin. His eight years was a time of economic chaos, but what was the role of news media then? Yeah, so following the collapse of the Soviet Union, like you said, Boris Yeltsin comes to power, and, and much of the state control during those early years of the 90s disappeared, and journalists were sort of set free to investigate what they wanted. When you think about it in the historical context, it really was this period of unprecedented media freedom in Russian history. But as you mentioned, there was economic chaos, and this relative media freedom was occurring during this opening of the economy. Some people call it the Wild West in Russia, where the newly wealthy were buying up these previously owned state-owned assets that were now being privatized. And as a result, the Russian media space, which had previously depended on, on funds from the state, became vulnerable to consolidation and co-optation by this new cohort of oligarchs like Boris Berezovsky or Vladimir Kosinski. And this reliance on, on wealthy individuals ultimately reduced the editorial independence of this you know, new free media. 
particularly given the role that these media barons played in the political realm. They had their own political goals and used their, their newly purchased media outlets to achieve those. Yeltsin chose Vladimir Putin as his successor for reasons you might suggest. How long was it before Putin began to target the press? Yeah, Putin kind of came out of nowhere at the, at the end of the 90s there. Um, he had you know, been a former KGB agent who then got pulled into politics in St. Petersburg and then through various machinations worked his way up to leader of the KGB, the FSB that is, and into prime minister and eventually the presidency. It was very quickly that he gained control of the media and information environment. Putin really viewed this, this media environment as crucial to regime stability and survival. And so within six years, he had complete control of the, the broadcast network, uh, the, the national broadcast network in Russia. Well, his view was that most of the Russian people depended on the television as their major source of news. That was his first objective. Absolutely. And, and the ways that he went after the, the, the news and the broadcast networks, you know, they were both indirect and direct. He used the Kremlin to apply pressure through corporate raiding of oligarchs. He used state-owned corporations like Gazprom, the state-owned uh, gas corporation, to purchase Gusinski's NTV, which itself owned independent, the independent media group Most. And, and these, these, these tactics largely worked. Like I said, the Kremlin had gained near full control of the broadcast media within a few years. What was the relationship that you've just suggested between Putin and the oligarchs and they're doing his bidding on the media? So it was sort of a contested relationship. Putin saw the, the influence that these oligarchs had on Yeltsin. Yeltsin, frankly, depended on them to win his 1996 re-election bid. And Putin saw that that was a risk. That was a risk to the stability of his own power. And so he very early on recognized that he either had to co-opt the, his, these rivals amongst the class of oligarchs or get rid of them. So you can think of like Khorovsky, who he simply got rid of by throwing in jail. Or you can think of others who became in charge of these state-owned corporations and, and did his bidding. Were the accusations of Putin stealing the 2011 election, which brought demonstrators into the streets, a seminal event for him, or the so-called color revolutions in former Soviet states that demanded democratic governance, was that unnerving? And what did he do in the run-up to the 2018 election then? I think many Russia watchers would identify that 2011-2012 period as a major turning point in, in the Putin regime's relationship and approach to civil society and independent media. Uh, you'll remember that these these protests were against fraud in the parliamentary elections, and that and and also Putin's decision to return to the presidency. And this this period really opened the Kremlin's and Putin's eyes to the growing discontent. At the time, you know, Putin was was using sort of similar tactics to what it had in prior years, detaining journalists, uh, using the broadcast networks to undermine the opposition, and and, in, and pressuring independent outlets, but. As you mentioned, you know those that period was was really notable. Those were the largest protests in independent history of Russia, and it inaugurated the shift towards an even more repressive state. This is when the Kremlin passed these so-called foreign agents legislation that we're hearing so much about today. Well, what is Putin doing in addition to ensure his party's landslide for the parliamentary elections this fall, and why does he have to do it? There's an even even more basic question of why even have elections if the results are already baked in. Of course, Putin depends on these elections for legitimacy and keeping the elite in line. And as such, they, the elections still have some sort of role to play. 
And so what we've seen in the last, you know, six months to two years is a move to repress really every avenue of dissent in Russia, the independent media being one of those, but also the political opposition and civil society. So starting with political opposition, we'd be remiss not to mention Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure who was poisoned by state security forces. He, while not a journalist himself, has nevertheless shed light on corruption within the Putin regime, which led to these massive protests that we saw earlier this year. And Navalny has, as you know, recovered in Germany, but courageously returned to Russia where he was promptly arrested and sentenced to prison. And his political movement ahead of these elections has been deemed a quote-unquote extremist organization, which means that anyone associated with the organization or movement or associated with Navalny has been barred from running in the, these elections. And that's that's part of a bigger bigger crackdown on the opposition during during this time. Well, they're also labeling news organizations being either subversive or foreign agents. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. It's It's been increasing. I looked at the numbers today. As of this morning, there were 47 outlets and individual journalists registered as foreign media agents. In 2012, I mentioned that there were the, the foreign agents law was introduced, and it was targeted more towards civil society and, and NGOs that received foreign funding. They were required to register as foreign agents. But over time, this law has morphed and expanded to include not only media outlets, but even individual journalists. And this law has been used to really hamper and interfere with the work of these, of these organizations. So take the case of this year, uh, Medusa, an independent media organization that does a lot of work, that does most of its journalism online. They were labeled a foreign agent by the government. And as a result, they've had, you know, the impact of this labeling has forced them to completely shift their efforts. So whereas before they, you know, their funding model was based on ad revenue, similar to other other online uh, news outlets in the world, they're, they're no longer able to do that because nobody wants to be associated, to have their brand associated with a foreign agent. At the same time, their, their sources of information, the people that they go to to get to do the reporting, they no longer want to be associated and thus they don't have access to information anymore. And other organizations like Dojd, uh, that is TV Rain, you know, these are large, large news organizations that have been hamstrung by these laws. And it's even these smaller ones have just had to shut down. Take the outlet Project, which is, you know, a small independent outlet that has been conducting investigations into several high-profile individuals among Russia's elite. And it was not labeled a, a foreign media agent. Rather, it was labeled an undesirable organization, which is even more, which has even more uh, damning consequences. Uh, it means it's virtually banned from operating. And its, its editor, uh, Roman Badanin, was registered as a foreign agent, and he's since fled. In fact, uh, many of these journalists are having to flee. Journalists and opposite, opposition figures are having to flee, flee Russia. Well, Medusa, which you mentioned, uh, operated A, on the Internet, and B, by setting up shop in neighboring Riga, which has freedom of expression. Now, the Internet made it possible for Russian journalists to report freely about Russia if they set up shop in other countries. Yeah, it, it kind of moves into this, this digital repression that we're seeing in Russia. As I mentioned, I think I mentioned, around 2011, 2012, the traditional you know, print media was beginning to morph into something online. Social media was becoming bigger. Social media played a big role in, in the Bolotnaya protests. And as a result, the Kremlin has moved towards more control of not just traditional print online media, but control of the entire Internet. What we've seen is 
this move towards, I mean, just this year, they recognized the internet as a national security threat in their national security strategy, calling it a destructive influence. In 2019, they moved towards a sovereign internet law. Uh, it's called the sovereign runet law, which makes this goal of having a sovereign internet over which they have complete control. And as a result of these laws, the, the infrastructure is much more controlled by the government. And so they're able to go after specific websites and just block them. Right now, Medusa's still up. They haven't been completely blocked. But nevertheless, they have this, this thing that they have to post on every single page that says, you know, we are a foreign media, we are a foreign media agent. Whatever we publish is the publishing of a foreign media agent. And if they want to tweet something, that, that thing that they have to post is already 220 characters. So it's not like they can even post any information. So the, the digital repression, the, the repression of the independent media has moved into sort of a digital repression, which is moving into now it's not even journalists that are being attacked, but it's just individual citizens who are, who are if you post something online, they're going to come after you. Do you think they're going to wind up with the Great Firewall as in China? Right now, the, the government is trying to sort of create a, a firewall, not by just blocking the internet, but rather by strong arming tech companies through this web of, of complex and evolving regulations. So they've attempted previously, uh, I think back in March, they attempted to, to throttle Twitter. Roskomnadzor, the, the telecommunications regulator, has sued Google and Facebook and TikTok and Twitter to try and get them to take things down. And last Monday, just last Monday, the authorities ordered Google and Apple to remove Navalny's app from their stores. So they're trying to create a firewall, not by, not through their own infrastructure, but by strong arming these tech companies into doing it for them. The Russians have had a public opinion research company, never possible in Soviet times. What does it tell you about what the Russian people feel, think of Putin, and for that matter, of the way the country is run, the way the pandemic has been dealt with, or anything that might be a threat to Putin? Yeah, there is, you're right, there's Levada Center, the, this sort of semi-independent polling place that looks at different sectors of society, asking them about political events and such. Most recently, just a couple days ago, they put, a, they put out a result of a survey that was conducted last month in which they asked people, do you expect there to be protests soon? And they had previously asked this in January around the time that Navalny was, was arrested. And at that time, Lots of Russians expected there to be protests, both against economic issues like corruption, but also against political issues like against Putin himself. But more recently, there has been a serious decline in the number of Russians who think there will be protests. And it's, it's interesting also to think about this in terms of a generational divide. If you look at these, these surveys that they do, you often see younger Russians more willing to express dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs. In fact, a number of young Russians in a recent survey said they were looking to emigrate out of Russia. So, you know, I think it's I think it's helpful to look at these these surveys. You should take them a little bit tongue in cheek as you never know if people are answering truthfully because of fear of uh, the repercussions from the regime finding out that they answered that they were unhappy with Putin. And, and Putin himself has in recent years lost some popularity. Don't get me wrong, he's still by far the most popular politician in Russia, but the state of affairs in Russia is not what it used to be. Putin rode in on this, this wave of, of oil money and the economy boomed, but that pace of success has not continued. In fact, it's declined. And so the average Russian is much more willing 
to say, I'd like things to be better, and Putin is the reason that they're not better. I think they're more able to identify that, that Putin's continued rule is holding them back. And in terms of emigration, in Soviet times, there was the Iron Curtain, which was very real. You couldn't leave the country. And now Putin seems to be saying to people, uh, almost from the beginning of his regime, if you don't like it here, if you don't like what I'm doing, here's a passport. Go. Absolutely. You see this with a lot of allies of Navalny right now. They are recognizing that this fight seems to be lost, or at least that's how they interpret it. And it's either stay and be thrown in jail like Alexei Navalny, or get out and be you know, a dissident abroad. There are plenty of exiled dissidents who are constantly speaking up about Russia, but honestly, their, their impact is unfortunately limited by the fact that Putin and the Kremlin seem to not care at all what they have to say and want to continue this repressive trend. By the end of this year, what will be left for the Russian people to obtain truthful information if indeed they want it? It certainly feels like this is the last gasp of truly independent media in Russia. And I don't want to make any predictions about where it's going to go. Russians may have to turn towards uh, using VPNs to access information outside the, the Russian internet. They may have to just go to their you know local neighbor to find out what's happening in the neighborhood. It's, it's a serious question about how are they going to get this information when all the avenues of independent media are being seriously repressed in this country right now. Well, on that uh, dispiriting note, we've been talking with Michael Smeltzer of Freedom House on this edition of Update One. I'm Irv Chapman with the National Press Club in Washington. Mike, thank you. Thank you. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to update1podcast, that's update, the number one podcast, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.